Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast where we speak to top industry leaders in the data science and data analytics space. We hear their stories, their mistakes and lessons learned, and with them we discuss data analytics, strategy, team building, stakeholder management, and all the topics that you need to take your career to the next level. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope that you're having a wonderful, wonderful week. Today, we're speaking with Evan Shellshear. He's the head of analytics at Biari, and I think you'll really enjoy listening to Evan's story, his very broad and diverse background, and how he's able to create value very quickly for his customers. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you do, it would mean the world to me if you share it with your friends, with your colleagues. Please tell them to listen too. Here's the interview with Evan. Hi, this is Felipe. Today I'm speaking with Evan. Evan, thank you so much for making the time. It is so exciting to have you on the show. Thank you, Felipe. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, mate. I've been looking forward to speaking with you for a while. And I uh, always wanted to ask you, how did you get started in the world of data? What was it that drew you in? It's actually been a long and interesting journey for me from back in the day when I started studying mathematics at the University of Queensland to where I am today. It's actually been one where I could summarize it with the concept of defensible decisions. What I might do is I might get into that defensible decisions a little bit later as we go into it and let people know what really does data allow you to do when making good decisions and tell people perhaps a little bit about kind of how I got here, if that works. So I grew up in sunny Brisbane here in Queensland, Australia, and I kind of, as I was a kid growing up, I enjoyed mathematics. I wouldn't say I was ever the guru or sort of Olympiad winning mathematician, but it was something I think that just clicked with me. And so when I got to university, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. So I just jumped in and studied maths and I just kept doing more maths, weird maths, esoteric maths, logic, philosophy, maths, just anything to do with maths. And I actually ended up graduating with a double major in mathematics in one degree and a single major in mathematics in another degree, which probably, I don't know, is some type of record there at University of Queensland. And then as I was approaching the end of the degree, I talked to some professors at the University of Queensland about pursuing further studies. And in particular, one thing I decided I wanted to do, if I was going to keep going on studying, I needed to change it up. It wasn't enough just to keep sitting at the same university and doing the same thing for another few years while doing some a master's or a PhD. So I had a bit of a chat and I said, look, if I'm going to do a PhD, I'd, I'd like to learn another language, let's say. And in high school, I'd been learning a bit of German. So I'd done it for a few years. And I thought, well, why not keep going in that direction? Why not keep learning German? And so I chatted to one of the professors and they, he said to me, look, if you're going to do German and you want to continue your studies beyond the bachelor level, he said, why don't you have a shot at the University of Bielefeld? Now, I'm not sure how many of the listeners have seen the movie back that came out a while ago with Russell Crowe in it. It's called A Beautiful Mind and it was one to represent and talk about the story of John Nash who ended up suffering from schizophrenia and was one of game theory's, an area of mathematical economics, one of game theory's leading lights. And so that was my goal, was to study game theory. And so I was given the advice, go to the University of Bielefeld, because when John Nash won his Nobel Prize in 1994, he won it with two other people, John Hassania and Reinhard Selton. And the University of Bielefeld was Reinhard Selton's university. He helped found the Institute of Mathematical Economics over there. And so wow. me being me... I don't tend to try and think about it too much because it can be quite a daunting thing saying, hey, look, I'm just going to pack up my bags, go overseas by myself and go for it. But I decided, look, that's what I want to do. So I ended up doing that. I bought myself a one-way ticket. And to my mother's despair, I kind of at the airport was waving goodbye saying, yeah, this is it. I've only got a one-way ticket. I'm not coming back from this one. And, and flew off to Germany. The other challenge I put to myself, and it's an interesting story that is covered in the book, 20 Beautiful Men, is that I only had $1,500 in my bank account. That was it. I didn't have any more money. So it was kind of make or break. And in addition to that, basically before I left, the University of Bielefeld had told me, we will accept you into our program if you can do a master's in one year. And it wasn't just any master's. It was a so-called diploma, which is normally a five-year degree. And so they gave me some credit for my previous degree, but they said, you have to finish it in one year. And so the gauntlet had been thrown down. I jumped on that plane and flew overseas to Germany to meet my fate. Basically, what happened was that I ran out of money. So within six months, I'd hit rock bottom. 
I'd actually gone into debt into my account. In Germany, they allow you to overdraw your accounts. And I didn't understand what this S next to my account was, but the balance when I was withdrawing money in ATM, and it basically meant I was in debt. I'd actually in the middle of the year realized the direction I'd chosen was wrong. So I'd gotten halfway through the year. I'd run out of money. I'd actually lost 10 kilos of weight. And already back then, I'm six foot something and I was 80 kilos and my weight had dropped down to 70 kilos because I wasn't eating properly. So I was, I didn't understand why my clothes didn't fit me anymore. And so I hit rock bottom at that point, like everything had come together just to crush you in that moment. And you're on your own over there. And I was in this little attic room at night and, and I remember the moon shining through the window and just looking at the work in front of me, just trying to pick myself up and say like, come on, you got to keep going. And it was really a deep learning moment for me. I think in my career, that was one of the big moments where it was kind of like, you either give up or you just hold on and fight through to the end. And then I chose to keep holding on and fighting through. And I think a month or two after that, things just started changing and picking up. Now, I'm not sure if that's a mindset thing that helped and then my perspective of the world, but it was definitely the next six months I managed to pull together the final exams I had to do. I managed to pivot on my master's thesis from an area called algebraic topology right into deeper game theory. And then I tried to complete everything within six months, which I managed to do to then jump into my PhD on game theory and pass through that and get that done in about two and a half years. So it was a pretty That's intense amazing. period of time. What kept you going when you were at that rock bottom place? What were you thinking that allowed you to summon the strength to, to move forward? I think it was one of, of I put myself in a position of no return. So I bought myself a one-way ticket. I had kind of run out of money. I had no choice. It was almost like you were holding me at gunpoint and said to me, you have to do this or I'm pulling the trigger. So you've got no choice. You're literally looking down the barrel of gun and you're going to get wiped out. And so you put yourself in a position where you can't back out, where you can't simply turn around and say, hey, I'm going to go take the easy path. It's over there. There was no easy path. It was get through it and get it done. And I think I like to say I'm tenacious. My wife calls it stubborn. And <laughs> and I think that's something that definitely helped me in that moment is just that tenacity and persistence to just keep sticking with it. That was a really important lesson for me. And another big lesson throughout my career was when I finished my PhD, it was after some discussions with my future wife. We're like, all right, let's keep the adventure going. And we head up to Sweden. We left mm-hmm. Germany, decided to go to Sweden for six years. And I joined a company where we were doing high-performance computing, robotics, optimization, a lot of stuff like that. It was a fascinating and awesome time. And one of the interesting things from that was I'd moved out from this pure mathematical area of game theory where there was no interest in the applications. It was the beauty of the proof was what determined what was good or what was bad and and the deepness of the result. And so I went up to Sweden and said, I want to change. I want to get into more practical skills that I can use. And that particularly revolved around computer programming. I'd never done computer programming properly. I'd actually avoided it at university because the problem that I have, and I'm always challenged by, and I'm sure a lot of listeners are similar, is if I don't properly understand something, I struggle. So if I try and jump in at a high level and someone starts, who's an expert in it starts explaining to me like it's really easy, it's this and that, and I don't get it and I don't have the foundations, I'll hate it. I'll just end up wallowing and then just floundering and then fail at it. And so I realized, look, I want to get into computer programming. I'd hate it in the past, but this is my chance now to pivot and start from scratch. So the owner in Sweden, who I'm very grateful for, gave me the opportunity to start from scratch, learning C++ and building things up from there. And it was during that time, there was someone there who was an amazing programmer. He was one of the guys that starts programming, I don't know, from like six or seven years old, something really, really young. And so people like that that grow up with it, they've got this amazing depth of knowledge and skill. It's it's almost like the art of programming is in them. They've just done it for so long. It's like breathing and talking. And I had someone like that as a mentor while I was in Sweden. And one of the greatest lessons he taught me and one of the greatest things that happened during my programming journey was all the challenges I faced and some of the big projects where we're working on things that were impossible. And he basically gave me the mindset through that mentoring. And I guess it's because of his experience was that you can solve any problem. You can solve any problem. It does not matter how difficult it is. What happens when you provide that solution sometimes is it may not be the perfect solution that you wanted, but you'll be able to get a solution always. And there's a little trick that I can give to the listeners. How do you do that? Like, how do you always come up with a solution? What's the technique? And the technique's actually quite simple. And it's one that I just call zooming out. So when you're stuck in the details of solving a problem and you hit a roadblock and you can't go any further, the way to get over that roadblock, it's almost like you need to go 
you imagine running around on a piece of paper and you're a dot on a piece of paper and someone draws a line in front of you and you're moving around as a dot and you hit the line. The best solution you can do would be to zoom out and actually see, actually, I'm in a three-dimensional world, so I can go up, over, and around that little blockade. And this is exactly what he showed me in these projects where if you hit a technical roadblock, the way to solve it is to zoom out one level. And when you zoom out one level from the technical, you're going up to the business requirements level. So you're forgetting the coding and you go back to thinking like, what is the problem I'm trying to solve? And by taking that step up, you're trying to find a way around that roadblock and to try and solve it on a business requirements level. If on a business requirements level, you still can't solve it, you zoom out one more level to the strategic level. And you ask your question, what is the client really trying to achieve here? Or what are we trying to achieve as a group? And you think about that again, you. And so each time you keep zooming out to a high level, and that's almost like being that dot on a piece of paper in a two stuck in a two-dimensional world, being able to go to three dimensions. So what that allows you to do when you go up to that third dimension is you can step out and over the problem. And I think that's what the advice was that I was given, what it showed me is the ability to say, it doesn't matter how difficult it is and how stuck you are in those technical weeds, if you really find you're blocked, and that being blocked might only be for like four hours or a day, the solution is often not to become more technical, but it's to take a step up and over and avoid the problem or look at the problem from a new direction, rise up to a new strategic level so that you can see really what's needed and what's not needed and understand it from a higher level, the problem that you're trying to solve. So it's one where instead of solving it by being technically smarter, you solve it by understanding the problem better. And I think that almost leads in and we could head down the trail of the minimum viable product and all those ideas of trying to figure out what's really needed at this point in time from the technical or the business requirements or the strategic level and moving to the level each time you get stuck to try and jump over the problem in a higher dimension. That is awesome. And that's definitely something that is very necessary, I think, in our field today. Do you have any examples from early on from your when you were working with your mentor? Do you have any examples from then that helped you change your mindset somewhere? Maybe an example where you were stuck and then having that discussion with your mentor helped you see the three dimensions of the plane or go up higher into the strategy. Do you have any examples from early days around that? So one of the areas that we used to work in a lot was robotics. And we actually, where I was working in Sweden, we took a totally different approach to the rest of the world, to solving deep fundamental issues in robotics around path planning and stuff like that. We used to, instead of using the common techniques that exist to do it, we chose a different path, which opened up whole new avenues of exploration for ourselves. And I think that was one of the moments that really helped me in that perspective where everyone around the world was solving path planning for robotics with specific collision detection techniques, checking for collisions and things like that. Do two objects collide with each other in space and then having to find out, okay, if they do collide with each other, you then have to roll back that motion and calculate a new motion and use this bisect method and stuff like that to figure out what's going on. And it was a really fascinating moment for me when they showed me, hey, what we're actually doing here, and it was published in a number of papers, this approach, is let's do this with distance. So the typical way was collision, and collision we kept, you'd come up against these roadblocks that make the algorithms really complicated. This requirement to roll back time and do other things made it quite challenging. And they said, well, we can just solve it with distance. Let's measure the distance between two objects so that if they ever get too close, we stop that from happening and keep going in a certain way. So we can prevent it from ever even happening. So we go up a level from the technical and say, look, what are we trying to do? We're just trying to stop two objects from hitting each other. And we don't have to do that by testing for collision as it is in robotics, but we can actually just measure the distance the whole time. So it was actually thinking of that problem on a higher level that led to a breakthrough that simplified a huge amount of work and the approach that we were taking towards trying to path plan robotics, uh, robots and do things like inverse kinematics and motions like that for large spot welding robotic arms and things like that in factories. Yeah, it's amazing. And why do you think that this is a hard or such a challenge for data scientists? Obviously, I'm generalizing here, but I've definitely seen that it's often difficult for people to get step out of their their work and sometimes the constraints that they put themselves in in order to achieve and deliver their work. And, and sometimes thinking broader and stepping out of those constraints allows them to find a much simpler solution, which you've hit in the nail so well. Why do you think this is a, a challenge for people? 
It's actually genuinely a fascinating topic. So one thing I do is I'm actually a guest lecturer at a lot of universities. I go around and lecture at the Master of Data Science and Master of Business Analytics courses. So I've done it at here in Australia, University of Queensland and University of Melbourne and RMIT and Queensland University of Technology and a lot of places. And I go around and I walk in and try and help the data scientists there go beyond what they're taught. So one of the things that you're taught as a data scientist and the things that I was taught doing a PhD is to be hyper-technical and to be extremely technical and have these technical capabilities because we can teach that. It's like you sit down, here's some knowledge, absorb it. What's difficult to teach are the soft skills. It's really difficult to try and help people learn how to do things like stakeholder management, learn how to do things, how do I solve these issues within the group and properly understand what's going on. And what I do when I get up in these lectures and talk to these kids, I say, look, I trust you're the most technically capable people there are. In this room, you are technically capable to the nth degree, but you're going to fail probably. You're probably going to fail in your first project because you're going to grab a problem and you're going to only look at it from a technical lens. And you're going to run away with this problem and you're going to spend six months locked up somewhere and just try and solve it on your own. You're going to come out and present it to the stakeholders and they're going to say, to you, well, the world's moved on. I'm not interested in that. We actually miscommunicated the problem to you. I actually didn't tell you five things because you didn't flesh them out of me. And, and now you've created this technical wizardry that no one wants. And I think that's an extremely difficult thing to get past. In fact, there's a human bias that exists. And it was made famous from a court case that existed in 1999. A woman called Sally Clark in the United Kingdom was convicted of the murder of both her twins. Now, as a parent, the most devastating thing that can happen to you is to be convicted of the murder of your children when you didn't do it. And I know that. I have twins. But I understand like how horrific that would have been for her to have been convicted of that and sent to jail. And the reason why she was sent to jail and convicted of murder was because both her children and twins died of SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome. And a person came into the court case and calculated the probabilities of that happening. They said it's one in whatever million. And it turned out the approach they'd taken to do that, they'd been hyper-technical. They'd figured out these probabilities. They'd figured out all these complex things to try and discover what the real probability was, but they got it wrong. And they got it wrong because they overcomplicated it. It is a human bias. It is in our human nature to overcomplicate things. And it is one of the messages when I'm lecturing, I tell people, however complicated your first solution is, look at it and simplify it and then simplify it again. So whatever you've done, you have to simplify it at least twice before you actually go and present it anywhere because it's going to be overcomplicated. And, and it's just a natural bias that exists. And people say it's related to having a fixed mindset to a certain degree. And there was a paper published in Nature at the end of the last year that really dug into that case and tried to understand why it happened. And they came up with this conclusion. And I think as a data scientist, one of the biggest things that I'm trying to work on and improve in myself is really those soft skills and really that ability to simplify things to improve the outcomes of both my clients and myself. Why are you choosing to focus on that part? Because I think... Again, it doesn't matter how technically capable you are. If you solve the wrong problem, you've wasted everyone's time. It is so important to get the problem correct and even more important to that than that. And, and I'm a consultant, so I go into a lot of companies and help them out, is I need to help the company understand what the true problem is. So they'll come to me with a version of the problem that they think it is. I need to sit down there. And I then need to have the soft skills and the capability to take what they've given me and to give it back to them in a way that they're going to accept and understand that actually their problems like this. No one likes to be told, no, 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 what you're talking about is wrong. It's actually like this. Everyone, no one likes it. So soft skills are straight in there to be able to reformulate the problem and present it back to them in a way that they will accept that what I'm saying is right and is the real problem at heart here so that we can properly tackle that and actually solve that real problem that they're facing and not the problem that they believe exists. Even then, when I've told them what the problem truly is, I then need the skills, things like design thinking, use those type of skills to then flesh out what it is that's going on. Completely agree. You're speaking my language. Like you're, you, We share the same pain. I think that there's such a focus in our industry on improving the technical knowledge and people are so eager to learn the latest algorithm, the latest techniques, the yeah. new programming languages, the new technologies. They're not focused on the interface component, like the interface to the stakeholders, the information that you get in and what you're able to put out back to them. That interface bit just needs such 
an amount of work. And for your case, what have you seen as the benefits for your career, for your development, for your opportunities? What have been the benefits for you as you focused on this specific part, on the stakeholder and communication, etc.? So I think it's a fascinating part of a career development, and it's something I'd love to make sure all the junior data scientists and everyone who's just started their data science career is listening now. If you're starting out in your data science career, or if you're someone who's even in the mid-level data science career, or even senior, you've got to understand where do I want to go to. As, as I climb the ladder and as I help people who I'm going to now mentor and train to be better, what skills do I need? How do I get there? Because if I'm just going to be Mr. Technical my whole life and not develop any of my other skills, then probably what I'm going to end up doing is being stuck by myself and just working on my own projects. And I'm not going to grow as a person. I'm not going to grow as an individual to get to a level where I can have a bigger impact. But if you recognize that to get to that level where you're going to have a greater impact, you need to develop those further skills to be able to manage people, to be able to manage risk, to be able to run projects. And invariably, that will take you away from a lot of the technical work you've done. Now, it's still key to be across what's going on technically in the world. But as you're moving up to manage teams and have people working around you, it's less about you as a technical guru and more about you as a member of a team, a member of a group that's working together to have everyone pull forwards. Now, that's not just simply how do I manage people? That's also recognizing risks. That's also running projects. That's also planning. There's, there's a lot of things that go into that. And a big part of that is obviously the stakeholder management that you're going to have for your clients. And that's what I'd say to people who are starting out in the data science career is don't just have your vision solely focused on that technical objective of being ultimate guru at, at creating hyper complex CNNs that can solve insane visual recognition problems, but look at where are you going to go with your career beyond that? Like if you're to advance in your career and move further, what are the other skills that you're going to need? Because it's not just going to be technical. To achieve scale means more than one person and not only in your company, but outside your company. And how do you manage those more than one person that exists outside your company as well as in your company? So true. That is a good indicator to follow as in if you want to have more impact you need to be working as a team and it means that you need better communication better stakeholder engagement i think it's definitely a good a good beacon to follow the one that you're that you're presenting what i found so interesting about your background is that you were going very deep into a particular topic and then you were consciously choosing to move into another topic and again, going very deep. And, and what I'm thinking is going from math to game theory and then from game theory to robotics. A really interesting journey in career. Can you tell me about how you made those decisions? What drew you to new areas and what were some of the things that you were looking for? So I think a lot of that, again, comes back to what I was discussing before in the sense it wasn't technical decisions, to be honest. So within life, opportunities present themselves and you need to be flexible and capable to take up those opportunities, I find. And so the move to Sweden, the opportunity was to have a family, to be honest. And it was, let's find something that can apply my generic skill sets around mathematics, around logic, and in particular around this kind of ability to solve challenging and complex problems and go for that. And it turned out it was in robotics. When I came back to Australia, I'd always had this interest as well in startups and starting my own company, and in particular from a technical perspective. And it was a fantastic three years that I spent in Australia before I started my journey with Biari. And those three years were really starting startups the wrong way. So I spent three years starting startups the wrong way and doing everything wrong that you could do wrong. And what I did wrong was I started off with a technology that excited me and I tried to commercialize it. I tried to take my hammer and look for nails and I ran around and just looking for nails trying to hit nails everywhere and it's just it is an exhausting long journey and it, it didn't work it failed because it was bound to fail and I guess it wasn't until I started my journey here with Biari where we have a fantastic position in Biari and that we're a consulting company so we have a lot of people come to us with complex problems and typically the problem begins with Excel as great as Excel is as a beginning tool to do data analytics and in fact there was a recent survey on KD Nuggets that looked at what are the most popular platforms for analytics, data science, and ML. And Excel actually came up number five on that poll. 
You wouldn't believe it, it did. And it makes sense because then I would advise everyone, if you've got a little project in the beginning, I don't care how complex you are with your CUDA programming on the GPU and all this type of stuff. The best way to start most projects is take a little bit of data, pop it into Excel and see if it makes sense and just do something really quickly in less than a day. But what happens with a lot of our clients and a lot of companies is you do that in Excel and you start off building something that kind of embodies that idea and and tests a hypothesis that you have. But the problem is, is that hypothesis, and let's call it a minimum viable product, to verify that hypothesis never changes. It grows and grows and grows in Excel and it stays in Excel. And this thing that was never meant for Excel is in Excel and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so typically what we do at BI is we'll come in and help someone take that Excel style model and bring it to the cloud and, and build a proper machine learning or optimization engine behind it and help them capitalize on their model in a, in a safer, more collaborative, secure, and more effective way and add, and add that extra value with some type of powerful engine behind the scenes. And I think this kind of approach to solving problems and this right way of doing it and using the consulting set that we begin with to build those products is what makes our company successful. So we don't take a technology first approach. We have clients coming in with their Excel sheets and saying, I've got a problem with this Excel sheet and I need to do this and that. We we build tools and we use our, we have a thing called Workbench that we use to put together solutions for them. And from that, over time, we're able to develop solutions for the market that they want because we're answering requests as a consultant to say, okay, we see a common thread amongst these activities, so let's build a platform to solve that. And we've been very fortunate over the years to continually have clients coming to us with problems that we're able to leverage our existing software to create platforms to serve them as well as multiple other customers. So I think that's one of the most interesting developments I've had throughout my career is going from that I love technology to realizing that if I don't have a customer, I don't have a business, basically. I'm not solving a problem, then I'm not creating a business for anyone. It's not doing anything useful. And I think that's that's been quite an interesting journey. But again, I guess it ties back into the original theme of what is the problem that you're solving and make sure you're solving the right thing, having the skills beyond the technical side. That is brilliant. And for the listeners, what would be a good indicator of success that they're moving away from being stuck solely in the technical side and moving towards delivering value, presenting things to stakeholders that solve their problems? What are the, some of the feedback loops or measures of success that you look for during an engagement with a customer, during a project? How do you measure that component that the people that you're working for and with are happy with your approach and deliverables? I think the aha moment is the one for me. So again, we'll have a client come in and they'll talk to us and they'll say, look, they think this is my problem, blah, blah, blah. We'll take it away. We'll then interact with them and continue asking them questions and and continue trying to flesh out what's going on truly. When we come in and present our analysis, and we do that in an iterative fashion, so we present chunks here, chunks there, and keep getting their feedback continually in a continuous feedback loop. And then when we get to the moment at the end and we present our analysis, and it's not what they exactly asked for, it's not what they were telling us, but it solves the true problem. That's where we see the value add. So it's a little extra bonus we do. We try and figure out what's a bonus that we can add, what's a real element there where you notice and you see in their eyes and you see, wow, they didn't think of it this way. This is truly something of, of huge value. And I'll give you a quick example. So we build staff rostering solutions, okay? The goal of our staff rostering solution is you have a large workforce that you want to manage effectively to achieve a certain t- set of tasks. So it could be in one area, we do it in ground handling, in, in the airports. In another area, we do it in health space. So we're managing consultants and doctors in an emergency department and we go in there with this tool and basically what we're doing is we're assisting them a single individual who spends up to two weeks of of time off and on trying to roster on their fellow consultants and fellow doctors we're trying to help them get away from that so they can actually get out on the floor and help people like that's a waste of their time be sitting there with an excel sheet trying to manage their doctors when they're highly trained professionals that could be saving lives so we come in there and, and this is kind of the idea that will help them do that but you know what the real value is that comes out of that it's not that at all the real value that comes out of this a softer again it ends up being that in a lot of rural hospitals around Australia and in a lot of countries, those hospitals struggle to keep on doctors. They fight to keep on the best consultants and they can't do it because every all the good consultants want to move back to the big city because that's where things are happening. And one of the unique value drivers that this rostering tool can create 
is unlike a human being, it can take in a complex set of preferences. So everyone submits their preferences via the mobile app and say they want to do this and that. They want to be on this weekend, but not next weekend. They want to work with their partner. They don't want any split shifts. They want to have large blocks. They want to not work mornings, but they want to do these specific evenings. And an individual, when they look at that, it's just mind-boggling. They can't solve it. It's too difficult. So we have algorithms and optimization engines that come in, take all these complex preferences and output a roster that caters to the preferences. So the people come back and the biggest win that we get from everyone is that, wow, we can actually create for our doctors a new value proposition as a rural hospital that we can cater to exactly their preferences. If they don't want to be on this Saturday, but they want to be on next Saturday, if they want to work with their partner and not be split up so they can get time off together, our engine does it. So the original arguments around makes it more efficient and that all of a sudden disappear and these new arguments that no one was expecting that, hey, we can actually offer our doctors a new value within their job. We can create, increase their happiness, their job satisfaction. It's like that's one of those extra bonus value adds. Things like that is what we search for in these jobs to truly understand what the challenges and problems are that they're facing and building tools around that to help them solve those challenges. That is brilliant. And could you walk us through the case study, which could be an extension of of uh, the rostering system for hospitals or maybe a, a different project with a different customer. But could you walk us through the journey of how does it go from concept or idea slash first conversations with a customer to then being a formal project started through the delivery and then moving on to the rollout, the productionizing, and if there's any change management that's required. Could you walk us through the end-to-end of our case study? We obviously do a lot of work. We have a lot of different projects that we work on. I myself are involved in dozens of projects every year from very big ones to quite small ones, things that last less than a week. And within that set of projects, we tend to take a similar process over one that we've found is very successful. And that process really revolves around taking a low risk approach to solving their problem. So it's not walking in and saying, hey, give us $10 million, we'll solve it. It's more walking in and saying, hey, let's approach this with a little bit of humility. Let's approach Mm -hmm. this with a little bit of modesty and actually from the outset, not walk in and promise the world. So usually what happens is with a client in a consultancy, if they're a new client, there's often a dance that goes on where you've got to get used to each other. You've got to get to know each other. There's often a few meetings to see, is there a good fit? And it's not just for the client, but it's also for us. Like as much as people complain about consultants, there's also bad clients. There's also clients that you just don't want to have and you don't want to take on board. And we will reject them if we see that a client's not good. If we look at their history and we see, wow, okay, this company's just run poorly. And it's not a company that we want to engage with because it'll end up both of us getting burnt at the end of it. And so after you do that initial dance to get a feeling for whether you can work together, the first thing that we recommend that we'd often do is try and come in and do a bit of a workshop to spend a couple of days really understanding what the problem is and understanding what the data looks like. And it's in that order. So it's first understand what the problem is, because what's actually quite interesting when you talk to a lot of companies, okay, what data do you need? How much data do you want? We'll get you all the data. I'm like, no, 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 don't give me anything. I want to understand the business problem. I don't want to see any of your data until I actually know what problem I'm solving, because you're going to waste my time and yours. And so usually it's first getting that business problem and then going in and looking at the data. And then once we've done that, one of the things that I guess it's nice talking to a consultancy and working with them is we've got a lot of experience we're going to leave it. So in design thinking, you've got a thing called the double diamond. And what it is, it's a process for solving complex and wicked problems in terms of ideating and then refining and then prototyping and then refining. And luckily, I guess as a consultant, we don't need to do that ideating and refining. We've seen enough of these problems, we can just go straight into the prototype phase. So what we'll do is we'll often suggest that we do a proof of value. So we want to show to the client what is the value of the problem they're looking to solve. And we try and do it cheaply and in a small scale. So maybe what we do is we replicate something retrospectively and show how well we would have done in the past versus what they did. And typically, so let's say it's a machine learning problem, we have to do something in forecasting. You forecast something and you figure out how good were our forecast versus what was actually done. Once you've actually done that, you've actually empowered and enabled your stakeholders to go back to the business, if they're not the business owners, and say, look, we've actually got a business case for this. We've actually done the analysis and seen that we will save X dollars based on real analysis, not hypothetical sort of guessing. And we want to build out a full tool from this. And then from that proof of value, we'll then be able to build out a full tool. But that doesn't mean there aren't more proof of values, right? A proof of value is all about tackling a major hypothesis that represents a major risk. 
So you'd look at each major risk and you'd potentially do a number of proof of values to ensure that each of those risks are mitigated so that when you build a full tool, the only thing that's left is perhaps the user interface, which we build. So we do kind of the end-to-end. We build the engine, the back-end, and the user interface and connect the whole thing together. And so we'll, we'll solve the major risks are really usually around the engine and its performance. And once we've got that going, it's just a matter of ticking the boxes to build out the front end and spending that time and money on that. So that's kind of the approach and the engagement we take. And I guess we've done that on a, quite a number of cases. So a recent example, if you want a case study, is one on a fascinating technology where a company was putting IMUs, inertial measuring units, in sporting goods. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to revolutionize the market in terms of how people can interact with sporting goods and the type of information that they can get out of them. And really, we approach this project from a similar process. We, we take it on a step-by-step basis. And throughout the whole project, continually identifying the risk and continually saying, look, we need to do a proof of value here. We need to flesh out what's going on there. And each stage, we do that and we recognize, oh, wait a second, here's another challenge over here with certain aspects of the data that we then have to dig into and resolve and, and try and solve that a little bit quicker. And what was fascinating with that is sometimes when we came up with a proof of value, we'd use some basic sort of two-line algorithm to do something instead of a proper machine learning algorithm. It actually turned out that worked well enough. So we could stop there and save the client a heap of money by just having some simple methodology that basically just compares things with certain fixed values and is able to achieve the outcome that they were looking for. It was actually quite eye-opening and sometimes even the proof of value gets us 95% of the way, which is a fantastic outcome for our client in that it's no longer a big sort of risky optimization or machine learning engine build. That is awesome. And how do you go into the deployment, productionizing, getting users to adopt the new technology? How does that piece work? Here's a tip. I think you're going to notice the theme throughout this speech, uh, throughout this conversation, sorry, the whole way through, and it's don't overcomplicate it. So yeah. BI is a company, what we do is let's look at the whole process, okay? Let's look at the whole effort involved in delivering a project from zero to 100. It's the first chunk of the project. Typically, if you look at the actual effort involved, zero to 40 is getting the business requirements, understanding the problem, getting the data, cleaning the data, looking at the data, eyeballing it, going through, making sure we can achieve with the data what we want to do and preparing it for an engine that we're going to build. Now, BI as a company is pretty unique. We can then build a machine learning side of an engine that then plugs into an optimization side of an engine. So we have more steps than probably most companies. So we can do the whole sort of not only predicting what comes next, but then telling you what to do with that prediction as well. And that if you look at those two pieces, the machine learning and the optimization of that full hundred, those two bits probably only take you from 40 to 60. So 10 for the machine learning and 10 for the optimization. The remaining 40 is the change management. That's the hard part. Now, How do you do that successfully? It's actually not that complicated. In fact, it's uncomplicating things that you do that successfully. So when we gather the business requirements and look at what people are doing, what they're typically doing is something in Excel. As I mentioned, most companies are solving, if they hit a roadblock and they're talking to us, it's because they've outgrown Excel. And they reach that point and they're challenged with Excel and they say, we need to get something fancy and fantastic in the cloud. What we do is we just look at their Excel and go, okay, you guys understand that, don't you? You know how to use Excel. It's pretty straightforward. You can interact with the sales and stuff like that. And so we say, all right, we're going to build you for that change management piece. We're going to build you a user interface that looks very similar to Excel, but we're going to add some extra smarts to it. We might plug in a macro or we might plug in other things that allow you to visualize certain aspects of it quite easily. But we're not going to take you in a totally different direction with a totally new interface it becomes complicated and difficult to use. We're going to actually keep you in a space you're comfortable and in particular for which you need no user manual. You know this way. You know this approach. It's intuitive. You've used it for years. So we're just going to take that and build you something that's as close to that as possible that adds a little bit of extra value behind the scenes or a little, little, a lot of extra value behind the scenes but doesn't fundamentally change your paradigm and way of operating. And that's where the successful change management occurs. There's no resistance because it feels like they're doing what they're doing in the past. It just so happens instead of taking 14 hours to run a bunch of macros, it now takes less than two minutes. So they get their answer in less than two minutes and they can now actually, they're enabled to scenario plan. They're actually now enabled to do what-if analysis and actually able to test different future scenarios with this new thing. It's not like I've redesigned the world or we've redesigned the world for them in terms of how they use it. It's the same. It's just a little bit faster, a little bit smarter. There's one single sort of truth now within their database instead of multiple Excel sheets. There's now a collaborative tool that everyone can access in real time. There's 
that tool that's now secure in the cloud, that they're no longer worried about security risks of people losing an Excel sheet that's sent by email or something like that. It's all just a little bit extra around it. And that assists with the entire change management. What also assists with the change management is having ownership. So the people feel like they own it. And that means going back again to those soft skills and people management that you integrate them as part of that whole development, then you're going to have a much better chance of them engaging and using the tool then. Because I feel like they built it themselves, even though you've probably done a lot of the technical work. That is really, really great. It's impressive how you guys cover the complete end-to-end from idea to rollout and change management. That's how you get the true value out of the technical effort is by fleshing out all the adjacent components. That's awesome. Thank you for that. And tell me about your book, Innovation Tools. Uh, Can you give us a bit of an overview about that? So back in 2016, I gave birth to an idea that had been pregnant inside me, I guess, for about two years. And about it was literally two years of evenings and weekends of trying to address something that just frustrated me. So as much as the Lean Startup, and the Lean Startup's just a reiteration of frameworks that have existed for years. There's, there's a Kinefin framework. There's the typical lead approach to project management. All these things have existed for a long time. This way of how do we iterate and manage risk effectively? And what frustrated me is a lot of these books and things that I was reading was, although at a high level they explain the framework, they lack the concrete tools to plug into that. Like what are the specific things that you would put and use to address that? What are the things that you would do to manage the risk on kind of a project level sort of execution level basis. And so my goal with that book was to look at a number of trends. So in particular, when I was publishing it, they were trends that either had been around for some up to 10 years, some of them, or some of them were cutting edge, like things like manufacturing as a service or medicine as a service, and present them as part of a toolbox that you could utilize to solve problems within things like the Lean Startup Framework and stuff like that. So it really was a frustration around what are the exact specific tools that exist for solve these problems and to manage risks within projects, in particular ones where you're trying to be innovative, you're trying to do something new that's going to have an impact, something that people will uptake that's got a business case for it, that's going to then get out there in the real world. And how do you do that? And what are the specific tools to address that? And it was it was a fantastic journey. It culminated in the book being at its launch, the number one bestseller in Australia, not just across its categories, but across every single book. It, I've got this hilarious photo of it. And where it's number one and The Great Gatsby's number two next to it. And I was like, yes, I think The Great Gatsby. And that was kind of a proud little moment for a second there until a couple of minutes later, people kept buying more Great Gatsby's in my book. So (laughs) it didn't last for too long, but there was a moment of glory there. It was a great adventure. I think writing a book like that is is kind of appeals to me, that persistence and tenacity to stick with something over years and see it through right to the end. That's something that I like to do. That is awesome. And this was your second book. How did you decide to get into writing in the first place? I guess writing was something where I realized I'm not the best writer. I'll be honest with you. Before I published my books, I, I my writing skills were quite poor. And so part of publishing and writing a book was about teaching myself how to write. Like, how do I improve my writing skills? How do I get to a point where I can write an engaging piece of text that people will want to read. Because again, if, if we really go back to what I've been discussing before around those soft skills, one of the key soft skills is communication. Like how well do we communicate with each other and how effective can we be? And given that the written text is one of the greatest forms of communication, it was essential for me, I felt, to improve that skill within myself. And so that was part of writing a book. And it was a fascinating journey because the way writing is evolving now is completely different to the way it's taught in schools. So with my kids, it's kind of interesting to see them learning the rules of grammar and learning the rules of this and that. And I ask them, well, look, let me, we'll ask them, what do you read on the internet? What does that look like? And we'll pull up a blog article and I'll say, which blog article do you like the most? And I'll point to this one here and I'll go, you notice something interesting about it? Do you see all those one sentence paragraphs? Do you see all those grammatical violations that are occurring throughout the article? And they're like, yeah, that's wrong, that's wrong. And I said, that's what kind of makes it engaging and interesting. In fact, the things that you're learning in school and the rules that you're taught may be relevant for a style of writing that existed a long time ago, but the world's evolving and moving so fast that that even that's something that we have to question. And I think a large part of writing that book was, was exploring that world of writing and understanding how do we effectively communicate and engage with people? Because as mentioned, one of the key things that I need to be able to do in my role is communicate effectively, is 
manage team, all these things that are soft skills. I was talking to someone who's a CEO of an AI company the other day, and he was, we're both commiserating with each other, saying, you know, all the technical tools, we're not going back. It's so sad. And, and my answer to him, and, and now what I think about it is, yeah, we can, we can get there, but more than Excel is probably not going to happen anymore. We're, gonna, we're, we're going back to Excel if, if we're doing anything technical, because in our roles, all we have to do is, is assist the teams in doing maybe a quick calculation here and there and, and helping them solve problems. So it's it's kind of that that writing is relating back into understanding like what is it that I need to be able to do to empower my team and to enable them. It's it's kind of funny. One thing I often say as a CEO, what it should stand for is it should stand for Chief Enabling Officer. The goal of the CEO yeah. should be to enable the company to achieve awesome things. And I think that's kind of a, a, an insight and a mindset that I definitely take with me. That is awesome. I wanted to change tact a little bit and ask you some questions about what you're doing at the moment. The first one is, what challenges or problems are you thinking about at the moment? What are you spending your time on or diving into right now? So I'm spending probably a lot of time just figuring out how do I continue successfully growing my team and the part of the business that I'm responsible for. And I use kind of a framework that I call the three Ps. And the three Ps are really around people, projects, and processes. So if we start with the projects one, which is the one I usually start with, that's kind of like, how do I keep creating value for my clients? How do I keep showing the world that what we do is amazing? And usually that type of work has a timeline of up to six months. When you meet someone and you're talking to them about how you can add value, then it often takes up to about six months before you both agree on a pathway. It can often be a slow process. The other people is how do I keep managing and maintaining an an awesome pipeline of talent? That's something that I continually invest my time in. This week, I did five interviews, and that's kind of normal for me to do so many interviews and continue doing interviews throughout the week to keep trying to get the best people because a company itself is just what its people can achieve. There's not an AI company that runs without people. They all run with people. So finding the best people is essential. And finding the best people has about a lead time of three months. You've got your projects, which is six months. You've got your people, which is three months. And then I've got my processes, which is how do I keep making sure my people are effective? How do I keep developing and evolving my processes to keep them working? That's about a one-month lead time on that one between the recognition there's an issue the resolution is typically around the one month. And so I guess the challenge I face is balancing out those three things and try to continually going between the how are my projects, how are my people, how are my processes, and moving between them, recognizing the lead time that exists within each of them and trying to balance them out. And I think that's probably one of the greatest challenges, just trying to juggle lots of different things, which is, I guess, what I enjoy and why I'm in the great company that I am at the moment, Biari, is that I get the ability not just to be stuck in one single aspect of an organization, which happens as you move into large corporations, but being able to be across everything and given the ability to manage all those things. That's probably my biggest challenge at the moment. So interesting. I totally see that is quite a breadth of activities. So yes, I can see it being a challenge, but well done. Tell me, what are you most proud of that you've done in your career? With such a broad background and so rich, what is what you look back and say that that is what I'm most proud of? My answer to this, I don't want any of the listeners to think this is cliche, but if you don't have children, you won't understand this. You'll struggle to properly get this one, but it's true in the sense of when you have a dad and you're a father, but when you have a dad, when you have a child and you're a father, the most proud moments in your life, you live vicariously through your children. So it's when your child takes the first step. It's when your child comes home proudly and shows you their report card and they run that 100-meter race and they come first. They're kind of your proudest moments. And I think the workplace is a lot like that. Unless you're kind of a narcissist and very focused on yourself, your proudest moments are often where you see your employees achieve something great And so that comes back to that CEO being the chief enabling officer. My proudest moments are looking at my team members and watching them flourish and watching them walk into a meeting and present an awesome project and proudly displaying some of the great work they've done. And that's what really excites me. And when I've had master's students that I supervised that went on to Cornell in the US to do PhDs in machine learning, and it was a proud moment for me to see my master's student actually go on and achieve that and get into Cornell. And and other people in my team build things like machine learning or AI algorithms and watching them actually achieve what was desired. It's great to look at them and go, you've done a fantastic job. I think those kind of moments for me are fantastic. And I know probably a lot of people listening might be thinking, oh, that just sounds cliche and rubbish. But I think once you've had children, you kind of understand and you see these things differently. It's like someone told me before I went to Germany, they looked at me and they said, oh, why do you want to go overseas? What's there to see? And I looked at them and I was like, yeah, you're kind of right. What is there to see? But the problem is until I actually 
put foot in Germany and went around that country and had a look at it, I didn't have an answer for that question. I couldn't tell them what there was to see because I hadn't been there. But now that I'd been there, I could come back to Australia and said, mate, you're missing out on everything. You have not seen anything stuck in your little village here and not expanding your horizon. And I guess it's similar here with the employees until I had kids and understood what it meant to not be the center of the universe yourself. My perspective was probably limited, but I definitely say nowadays it's watching the team go out there and achieve some great milestones. That is absolutely brilliant. And tell me, what do you see as the current and future challenges in our states? I think some of the challenges will be around the hype. So one of the things I'm noticing is a bit of an ML fatigue and AI fatigue with companies. So over the last, in Australia at least, over the last, I would say, three to five years, Machine learning and AI has caught on. There's been a long time coming, and now industry is deciding they want to get a part of it. And they basically walk into meetings and say they want AI, they want ML. But the problem is, is they don't know what that means. And so, like anything popular, like digital marketing was, and a lot of things, a lot of people jump into this space who may or may not know it very well and don't have the fundamental mathematical underpinnings like we do at Biari. And a lot of companies are getting burnt. And I think what's going to happen is there's going to be a machine learning fatigue. And as much as Google and Amazon beat the drum and the machine learning and AI and show these amazing results, the smaller companies and, and even the medium or large size enterprises are going to keep having a shot. And they're going to keep getting burned to the point they're just going to say, I'm not doing this anymore. This stuff's rubbish. And so I think one of the challenges we're facing is delivering. As a group of individuals and as, as a community of data science, we need to make sure we're delivering. And I think this podcast that we're doing is extremely relevant for that because delivery is not just about getting the technical side right it's about getting the whole delivery right right through to production and actually having a person use the tool not just building it but actually using it and getting value from it i think this is one of the big challenges that i'm seeing for for our community could not agree more i love their focus on customer outcomes on value i love the way that you focus on humility on solving the problems simply and quickly and growing the relationship with customers. So many things that I've loved about this conversation. It's been fantastic, Evan. I only have one, one last question for you, and that is a takeaway for the audience. What's something that you would like to leave the listeners with, a piece of advice or something that they could consider in their own journey? I think I'm going to start sounding like a broken record here, Felipe. It's going to be build those soft skills. Get those soft skills. Get those project management skills. Get those people skills. Look at where your career is going. Look at where your company is going. Because even as a company, you probably need to build those skills to communicate with your customers more effectively. So my recommendation is look beyond the technology and look to where you want to get to and recognize that it's a big picture. It's a big canvas that you're going to have to fill with a lot of color. Yes. Thank you for that, because that is exactly what's necessary in the field today. Evan, this has been an absolute, absolute pleasure. I can't thank you enough for sharing your story, your wisdom, your insights, all your learnings and perspectives. It's been awesome. Thanks so much for your time. Definitely, let's stay in touch and look forward to uh, speaking with you again. Absolutely. It was a pleasure to be on the show today, and I look forward to uh, staying in touch and keeping the conversation going. I wanted to tell you about the RMIT Online Masters of Data Science Strategy and Leadership. I was one of the industry advisors for this program. It's an online master's program and it covers both data science strategy and leadership and it has also a technical component. Highly, highly recommend it for people wanting to get ahead. With the program, you can gain this advanced strategic leadership and data science capabilities required to influence executive leadership teams and deliver organization-wide solutions. For more information, visit online.rmit.edu. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.